0: This is Steve Stein, welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. My guest this episode is Oliver Tombe, Chairman of McKinsey & Company in the Asia Pacific. As the firm's top representative in the region, Oliver has developed a unique perspective on Asia, informed by access to the region's presiding corporate and government leaders. In a newly released report entitled, Asia's Future is Now, he and his colleagues point to an unprecedented rise in Asia's commercial, trade, and infrastructure development. Nothing, so it appears, can keep Asia down. For decades, the region, largely powered by China, served as a low-cost manufacturing base, feeding the world's insatiable appetite for consumer, luxury, and electronic goods. Slowly at first, then more rapidly in recent years, R&D spend by Asia-based businesses started to rise. From advanced clean tech solutions to the latest in digital media applications, the region teams with innovation at all levels. Throngs of engineers and entrepreneurs are emerging from India, Southeast Asia, and Chinese universities with a license to design and build. Western markets and corporations are witnessing the technicolor change and in boardrooms from New York to London, the question is being asked, what will it take to compete now and in the future? McKinsey is one of the world's leading management consulting firms, has had its finger on Asia's pulse for years now. With the release of this and a series of follow-on reports, the group is making its biggest statement yet about the breadth and depth of economic change now sweeping the region and, in effect, recalibrating the global balance of power. It's all happened in the blink of an eye, and this week's guest, Oliver Tombe, has had a front-row seat in witnessing the shift. In kicking off our conversation, I asked him to share a bit of his own personal history and his initial take on Asia. I welcome you onto the show, and thank you for joining me, Oliver. Much. uh, I I really appreciate it. Good seeing you, Steve. So we have a lot to talk about in a short period of time, and I thought, uh, just as I'd like to kick off all these programs, a little bit about
1: yourself. How did you arrive in Asia? How long have you been here? And maybe a little insight about uh, what you've seen change. So my, uh, my history in Asia starts on May 21, 2003, first time I set foot in Asia. I remember it as if it was uh, yesterday. So I'm, I'm originally from Norway, and um, I was working as a, as a partner in, uh, in our uh, Oslo office. And I was thinking about, you know, you, you cannot be a, a leader, a global leader, if you really don't have experience in Asia. So I just, no, I thought I, I had to go. Um, and um, as luck would have it, I, I ended up doing a, a presentation on May 21, 2003. And there's an episode there, uh, if you don't mind, I'll tell it to Which, uh, so I'm presenting in front of 30 people in KL. Uh, all I know about Malaysia at the time is it's a beautiful country, resource rich, and it's a Muslim country. That's literally what I know about Malaysia at the time. I am in the middle of my presentation, I'm feeling good, you know, I'm, 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 I'm on a flow, right? You know, the audience is listening, engaged, and so forth, and suddenly the projector just goes boof. You know, the old-style projectors with those light bulbs, and there's a small little plume of smoke coming out from the projector, screen goes black, and the room is entirely quiet. You can hear a pin drop. And at this point, I mutter, oh, Jesus. Uh, and there's a voice in the corner that quietly says, I don't think he's going to help you here, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> that, that episode, that was the moment I fell in love with Malaysia. I fell in love with Asia. I just knew that I, I had to, to move here. The person that said this turned out to be a good friend of mine over the next uh, many, many years. So that that is the moment that I... Decided to uh, to move, uh, and uh, you know, a few months later, the whole family, two kids, and and wife, we moved to KL. Right, right. And and you you've
0: specialized in the energy field, or is it across multiple industries?
1: So the first. Uh, the, uh, Ten years, give or take, change. I I spent most of my time uh, on in in energy, broadly speaking, whether it's oil and gas, whether it was as uh, uh, power utilities and 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 what have you, and broader based mining as well. So yeah, that was the first uh, the first ten years, um, and you know, th- fascinating place to 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 uh, to to look at energy uh, to spend time on energy in in Asia. I used to lead that uh, in McKinsey for uh, for a while. Um, And and you look at just how that has changed, and the conversations we're having today versus we're having back then. Now the whole energy transition, and we're starting to see that pick up uh, also in uh, in Asia. A little bit behind the rest of the world, perhaps, uh, but now it's picking up speed like there's no tomorrow. You look at. India uh, is doing more uh, renewables investing than almost any other, well, it is more than any other country worldwide. China, right at the forefront of uh, of all things renewable. So, you know, it's just a fascinating place to be in Asia for the purpose of energy. And, and
0: you've, has uh, produced a recent report Uh, really looking at a macro level at some of those big changes uh, in Asia over the last 22 decades, two and a half decades or so. Um, Tell us a little bit about the report. Tell us a little bit about the key findings.
1: um, And what's surprising to you about some of the things that came out from the report? So listen, this is this is one of the some of the things about Asia that I find fascinating. We know that Asia is big. We know that Asia is growing, but just the sheer magnitude of things is changing. We've all been saying that you know Asia is on the rise. Now that no, it's no longer the question, will Asia rise? The question is, how is Asia going to lead? You look at um, overall um, uh, going to fifty percent of world GDP by uh, by uh, uh, twenty forty. Uh, 50% of uh, growth in consumption is going to be in Asia. Uh, So you just look at the share size and growth. Asia is the place uh, to be. Uh, You look at some of the other things that are perhaps not as obvious, especially from the outside, but even factors like 65% of patents in 2017 came from Asia. Hmm. Uh, 44% of international students were from Asia. Uh, You know, these are fascinating changes over the last two decades. Um, So, There's just been a massive change. Asia is big, it is changing, but the degree of change, you know, it just, it it cannot be underestimated.
0: There was the uh, Fortune 500 list came out just a few days ago, and it showed that for the first time, Chinese companies outpaced American companies in the 500 list, Uh, a real turning point. And then I think even across all of Asia, uh, it outpaces all over all other regions in the world, if I'm
1: not mistaken. No, that is true. So that's true for Fortune 500. It's also true at the other end of the spectrum you know, unicorns. Mm -hmm. So uh, of the world's, you know, 300, uh, give or take change, unicorns, you know, 119 of them are in Asia. Large part of those are in China. Uh, But even India has more unicorns than, for example, Germany. Uh, So we're now starting to see an innovation that's coming as well. Uh, So this to me just, you know, it gives a breadth and depth uh, of Companies, we see ecosystems on the rise. We talk about the tech ecosystems um, in Asia, particularly in China. Uh, There's just a fascinating dynamism that we see. This, this aspect of innovation is both a blessing
0: and a curse for the West, isn't it? Because uh, in some ways, it suggests Asia is coming into its own. Uh, it's no longer copying and building you know, and leveraging its uh, cheap labor uh, and cheap capital. They're actually looking at ways of creating new and innovative approaches to new services, new products, and that is feels to some degree like a bit of a risk and a bit of a threat to the West. Um, There's several examples, which we don't need to talk about in detail, but there now feels like there's a bit of a, you know, this is a true rivalry and not just simply a cheap manufacturing market for us in the West. How do you find when you engage with some of the Asia-based companies, what are they doing to kind of like move the innovation pendulum uh, further in their favor? Um, Are they investing more in R&D? Are they doing more in terms of um, domesticating or bringing back talent from you know the markets? You mentioned these overseas students who are being educated in the West, coming back to Asia. Are they now deploying them in the interest of their companies versus MNCs? What are some of those
1: trends? Listen, absolutely. You're, you're picking on some of those. That's very important. Let me just make two, two, two points first. Um, so this, this uh, the old model of globalization was, you know, find low-cost labor, and that's where you build up uh, your plants. You know, that model has changed. We've looked at this and analyzed now that only, it's less than 20%, 18% of uh, trade goes from low cost to higher costs mm. countries, mm. so this labor arbitrage as an important factor in globalization it has you know been dramatically reduced. It's now virtually disappeared in it's some ways. Almost virtually mm. uh, virtually disappeared. Mm. Second fact is you know you look at China, same is true for India, many other countries, but you go back two thousand and seven, uh, about sixteen percent of Chinese goods were exported. Fast forward to today, um, and that number is 8%, eight percent, eight and change percent. So a significant reduction in the percent that is exported. Now let's also remember at the same time the amount of goods produced has tripled. So, so there is still there's a significant um, exports. But, but the point is that China is producing for China. China is producing for Chinese consumption. India is producing for Indian consumption more and more so, even though exports are still high. So, so that's the other factor here that we need to, to remember. And therein lies the
0: opportunity and also plays into some of the geopolitics because if consumption rates are relatively low in China versus in the West or North America where they're topping out to some degree, we've got an opportunity for China to actually perhaps rise a little faster than its Western
1: counterparts. And it's trying, right? You know, they, they are trying to shift over from a manufacturing-oriented to services, industries. They're trying to stimulate uh, domestic demand and so on. Now, of course, you know recent uh, trade tensions and trade wars are—they're you know, not helping in in China. Uh, but they are trying to make those shifts to increase their own uh, domestic consumption, uh, for sure. Uh, but but the, these these shifts um, are are interesting in that you know they have pretty profound Im- uh, implications for where do companies place value chains? Where is manufacturing happening? Where is the R and D happening? Uh, you also asked a question around you know where is technology, you know, where is it coming from? We see there is a tremendous amount of innovation in technology also now in Asia. It's one of the big changes from when I first set foot in 2003 to today. Uh, there's a ton of investment, uh, Asians companies investing in innovation in Asia. Mm. Um, Not
0: rushing back to Silicon Valley to buy a company or in, invest in, in a stock.
1: That's you know, exactly right. And um, so over 70% of investments in innovation uh, in startups are actually Asian companies investing in Asia. So um, this is a, a, a big shift. And with that also comes, you know, the, the old model was, you know, we thought, you know, Many Western companies thought that they were predominant, whether from capabilities, technology, and what have you. You now have many Asian companies that are on par uh, with uh, technology, on par with uh, with uh, capabilities. Why is
0: it, Oliver, that you know, with all of this momentum and all of this growth and all this extraordinary change, that there still still seems to be an element of myopia? Uh, in the West, in terms of what Asia really means to the rest of the world, from a geopolitical position or even even a uh, economic perspective, there still seems to be this feeling like we still have most of what we need out here. You know, Asia is just will still a lot of years ahead before they're going to be able to catch up. But that's not what your reports indicating. That's not what the numbers are showing. Why do you believe there's this resistance to open up or engage in Asia in this new kind of forward-looking way?
1: So listen i think that will come and i think it'll come uh quickly and when people start to realize just the share size and how quickly things have moved uh today you know the 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 ppp adjusted gdp of china is significantly larger than the us and 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 so forth india is larger than um, significantly larger than Japan, you can put, <laughs> or, uh, sorry, than, than Germany, for example, yeah. you can put. So, uh, you know, when people start to look at these numbers, uh, you know, they will quickly realize that this is, is, is the place. So I think it's just a matter of, uh, you know, people typically focus on what's happening closer to home, um, but now just realize that Asia is the future and the future is now.
0: With growth, uh, with a rising middle class, with higher consumption levels, uh, with urbanization um, come challenges. Um, Lots of cities uh, across Asia Pacific are under pressure. Jakarta is sinking. (laughs) You know, Shanghai is one of the largest cities on earth, if you include, you know, the surrounding areas. Uh, Pressures to manage the infrastructure and manage some of the issues related to high populations in urban areas. Health-related risks. How... What in your assessment, how is Asia managing these issues in terms of managing expectations of the rising middle class?
1: So first, important to realize cities are the answer. Right now, there's a lot of tr- problems in around cities as well, yes, but they are the answer because of the efficiency when it comes to resources. We live in a world where and you know, the scarcity of resources is increasing and increasing cities are more efficient when it comes to transportation, provision of education, provision of healthcare, and all the, you know, all these things, uh, cities are more efficient. So cities are a good thing. But they do come with challenges. I think here what is exciting is to look at some of the, 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 the innovations using technology in cities. You know, we talk about smart cities, smart transport, uh, smart health care. And, and you, you do see that, you know, the amount of attention that gets amongst many of the cities in our part of the world, in Asia. Uh, is is very significant. So you know,
0: proactively or reactively. I mean, is it because you have this rising situation where all of a sudden governments are scrambling to accommodate, or is it an anticipation of continued growth that
1: they're making these investments in a way to manage that 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 growth in a more thoughtful way? So the answer to that is yes and yes. No, I okay. mean, it is proactive yeah. and reactive. Yeah. Of course, there are, there already are problems, whether it's congestion mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, so that's a reactive part, but also proactive. You know, I, I spent quite a lot of time with the Singapore government as one example. Now, of course, Singapore is is a very developed country and well ahead of, of, of many. But the amount of time, effort, and money that is put behind future-oriented solutions is you know, quite frankly incredible. Yeah. So so I think they're both proactive and, and reactive. The other thing I would say, you know, we talked about cities, but you know, this is one of, sustainability is one of the big challenges for Asia. You look at topics, you know, climate change, um, you talked about sinking cities, rising uh, water levels is a big problem in Asia. Uh, plastic. Mm-hmm. So more than eight million tons per year of plastic is entered into the oceans worldwide. The majority of that is in and around is China, India, and Indonesia, yeah. Philippines. So um, these are very serious problems. You know, you go to beautiful Bali, you will find beaches that are full of plastic regularly. So these are very real sustainability questions. Uh, deforestation being another one of them. These are very serious issues. That you know, so far have not received the amount of attention that they 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 should and need.
0: Are you feeling in in your movement around the region and conversations with government leaders or corporate leaders in these markets that they recognize it's a problem, or are they simply waiting
1: and hoping for somebody else to step in and solve it? Uh, listen, yes, they they recognize it's a problem. I, I I would say that you know we're a number of years behind. European Mm. countries, as an example, Mm. Uh, but it's absolutely recognized. Mm. Um, And now, I think most countries are getting on with it. I think most companies recognize now uh, that they need to be part of the solution. Mm. You know, there's nobody else that's going to solve this. That is true in Asia, not only in Asia. It's a global phenomenon. I I was at the World Economic Forum earlier this year, and you know, one of the big changes over the last couple of years is just corporate corporates view on who needs to be part of the solutions to some of these sustainability challenges. So, you know. And they feel like they need to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Do you see any slight difference in terms of how uh, Asian conglomerates uh, view this issue versus multinationals? Do you, Is there a, you know, if this is their home territory, uh, do they feel more of a conviction around doing something? Or is they are they waiting for the MNCs to establish some type of participation and then following behind? I know it's a bit of a general question, but I'm just wondering, you know, where's that inflection point? Where is it going to come from? Which tri- type of organizations are going to lead this? Because I hear you and I believe you're right. I think corporations, because governments are bureaucratic, too slow moving, have other issues around poverty and health, uh, you know, to ask them to then take on sustainability and recycling and everything else that goes with it is is a big ask. Where do you think, which countries or which organizations uh, do you feel are starting to really lean into this issue?
1: So, yeah, listen, I, I, I do think that the companies in Asia now, it's uh, dangerous to generalize, but but I do think that there are they are a couple of years behind mm-hmm. some of the Western companies, some of the Western MNCs, when it comes to thinking about what do they do. It's not that they don't realize that, yes, we need to do something, and I think most companies in Asia also are starting to do something, mm-hmm. all, whether it's under the banner of corporate social responsibility, whatever that banner may be, but they are starting but the amount of time, attention, and money, and intensity that is put behind it is a couple of years behind. Mm. But, but I do think that this will follow the normal Asian way, which is you know maybe a couple of years behind, but it's gonna catch up very quickly and, and then hopefully overtake uh, others.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the superstar companies that you cite in the report, um, some of the Asian rising stars in, in the Asia corporate landscape. Um, what do you mean by that term, and, and, and how, did that, how, how do you uh, decide what a superstar looks like? Is it based on just the rate or pace of their growth and change? Is it the level of innovation? Uh, is, it their, uh, is, is it the, the,
1: the um, uniqueness of their products? How do, what qualifies them as a superstar? Well, a couple of things. Number one, uh, so, you know, to be a superstar, you know, there is a size cutoff off uh, that, you know, you have to be a billion dollar um, a, a revenue company to, uh, to start with. Um, and, and then the second is performance. So return mm. returns. And what we do see is that the 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 top companies in Asia actually have higher returns, uh, about one point seven times higher returns than Western companies. Those those are the top companies.
0: Why do you suspect?
1: Um, I think a, co- a couple of things. I think you know just uh, the share rate of growth of innovation and but it's not only innovation but as a new business development mm. there are more opportunities many of the conglomerates here are grabbing many opportunities that are near to them that they can they can access and they're running fast mm. so i think that that's that's part of it uh but the picture is a little bit more complicated or at least dynamic than that because what we also find is because we look at this over decades mm. um and The churn uh, amongst the top performers in Asia is also significantly higher than the churn in the West. I.e., if you're a top performer, the likelihood that you're gonna fall out of that group is much higher in in, in Asia than it is in the West. Oh, that's interesting. So it's a much more dynamic playing field. And you know, we think this has to do with just that, you know, the growth that comes, the innovation that we're seeing, the technology revolution. So there's just much more dynamism amongst the winners. Huh. By the way, the same is true for the, the non-winners, the losers, if I'm allowed to call them that, the other end of the spectrum, yeah. the ones that destroy more value. So the ones in Asia that destroy value destroy even more value yeah. than in the, in the West. Yeah. <laughs> so and the in superstars terms, and super right, losers. <laughs> is that what you mean? That, that's yeah. not what I call, yeah. uh, that's not what I tell my clients, right. but, but yes. <laughs> but, but also, and the same is true there for the turn. So it, it's a more dynamic field. So, you know, whereas, you know, you go uh, in the West and you talk about, you know, look at the winners, the likelihood that five years from now, you know, 80% are going to be the same. But here it's going to be much low, uh, much lower than that.
0: It was, I guess, an an example might be uh, the solar uh, manufacturing industry in China Mm. threw lots of resources at that, drove down that per unit cost right to the floor, uh, overextended Busted in terms of all kinds of businesses, but also created a kind of equilibrium globally and created and drove efficiencies for all organizations to the point where all of a sudden solar projects became viable and even, you know, preferential in some cases to, you know, traditional energy is my understanding. Would that be a good example?
1: I think it's a great example. And by the way, a very important part of the the energy transition that we've seen globally, mm. right, because of that, uh, that scale of investment that they put in. Uh, so th- I think that's a great example of that dynamism that we, uh, we see. Um, Some might
0: call it foolery because, I mean, he, they really did blow up the business because there was so much cheap uh, money available to extend and, and, and grow the business so quickly, the market wasn't ready to absorb it, is the feeling. But then again, it forced change in ways that you might not have seen in a more stable, rhythmic kind of growth pattern that you'd see perhaps in the West.
1: Yeah, but, but but I think we. Um, I think this is also a sign of where is an industry in its evolution. I mean, this is not dissimilar. If you want to go back in history to, to railroad companies in in the U.S. to car companies globally, right? You know, a, a, an initial period of euphoria where there's a whole lot of investment going in and and capacity being built and overbuilt and which then sees a period of consolidation mm-hmm. you know some closures after that and and then a more stable industry going forward so i, I don't think it's dissimilar to what we've seen to some other okay. things uh, globally
0: yeah all right a little bit more about some of the markets that you feel i mean indonesia the sleeping giant—the one that everyone's always thinking about but hoping for—does um, it does it appear that uh, under Jakawi that we're now going to see a new rising star on the on, on the landscape, or is it still going to be primarily a China India story for the next uh,
1: you know five to ten years? Now, listen, this is important. Uh, you know, the, the Asian story is not only uh, China and India; it is also ASEAN. Let's 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 start there. Uh, ASEAN GDP more than three uh, three trillion in 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 GDP it's the same size of uh, as India um, Indonesia is an important part of that of course mm. so I think this is you know there are multiple stories you know even Japan let's remember Japan is a huge economy to start with mm. um, and you know the, you, my sense is and when I'm on the ground in Japan even there you're starting to see some. Some winds of uh, pick up some winds of change, mm. n- a new generation of leaders coming in, you know, new opportunities in and around technology, and, and what have you. So you know, there, there. Uh, to me, there are many exciting um, countries, sectors, spots in um, in Asia. Uh, you 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 picked on uh, on Indonesia. Let's sleeping giant, yes, but let's remember it's it has been ticking at five plus percent growth now for a very very long time. Mm. And you know, it's, it's, it's a sizable economy, uh, growing at 5%. You know, India, 7%. Um, so this is absolutely, and you know, we can go to Vietnam and, and, and other places, so this is absolutely not only about China and, and India, uh, but it's much more diverse uh, than that. Your report is bringing
0: to light some of the macro and some of the micro issues related to this growth story, which is Asia. What is the message you're trying to get across to those outside of the region who are contemplating their participation in its future growth? Is there a warning sign here? Are there elements of you can't miss this if, you ha- if you're not here now? It's, it's You're almost late to the game. What, are you try- what message are you sending to those that are trying to understand the region? What advice would you offer?
1: You know, listen. Number one, um, Asia—the future is now. It's 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 happening. Uh, it's happening fast. So, um, I think listen. Most company, many companies are here. You know, many Western MNCs and what have you already are present and play a very important part in in, in the region. So, it's happening. Uh, this is the place to be when it comes to growth in the future. When it comes to technology. When it comes to even even place, uh, even capabilities, skills, and what have you. Asia is the place, uh, an important place to be. Uh, the second thing is that you know, do not think about Asia as Asia. There are many different Asias. India is completely different to Japan, to uh, to China, completely different to Vietnam, to Philippines, and 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 so forth. So there, this is not a uniform Asia. Uh, so you need to tailor whatever strategies uh, that you might develop needs to be tailored to a much more granular than than Asia at a broad level. Mm. Um, and number three, just think about, you know, Asia, f- uh, you know, for Asia. No, don't, I, I hope that comes across in the right way, but, you know, there's a lot of activity in Asia. Mm-hmm. Intra regional trade right. is at 60%, which is higher than in anywhere else except uh, the European Union. And that's increased year on year for the last 20 years, hasn't it? Has, it has, has yeah. continued to grow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, investing in Asia it will, primarily be for Asian markets often, not always, but I think investing in Asia for Asia, um, investing in capabilities in Asia. Have those intra-Asia trade numbers
0: uh, shifted dramatically since the trade tensions began growing between China and the U.S.? In other words, is China now seeking out markets in Asia Pacific in ways that it
1: might not have done before? I think it's accelerating a trend. I mean, this I, I know the the, the trade, trends, trade tensions that we have seen recently, to me, what they have done is just accelerate a whole bunch of trends that we otherwise were seeing. Mm. Uh, anyway, You know, the shifts in the value chains, uh, sorry, the supply chains, mm. uh, the shifts in, uh, in trade, in global trade, intra-regional trade, the shift to more services and what have you. Those trends we're seeing, this accelerates it, mm. you know. There have been some benefactors, Vietnam is the most obvious yeah. one, you know, the shift out of manufacturing into, into Vietnam, it's been a tremendous growth story. Mm. Um, not only there, we've seen the same in, uh, in, uh, in India and uh, several other countries in ASEAN as well.
0: What's missing? Now, what about regulation, government participation, transparency, corruption? Are the things that, in your mind, still are uh, considered concerns for you, or do you think it's all moving generally in line with where you would expect it to
1: be as these markets mature? Uh, listen, these are very real concerns. You know, I think let's call a spade a spade. Uh, I think all all countries are trying at, at some level. Um, and all countries are making progress. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step backward, yeah. but they are trying to move in the right direction when it comes to transparency, when it comes to, to corruption, um, when it comes to cronyism. Uh, but I think you know, everybody that works here understands that you know, th- these are factors that are, um, they are present in uh, many of the countries around here. So a, a need to discount for it in some ways. To discount for it to it is fully possible to operate completely clean in all countries around here, but you have to go in there knowing how to do that going in not being naive, mm. find the right partner uh, with the right reputation the right capabilities that will do things in a in the way that you want them done in an ethical way
0: what could occur in your mind, what scenario might interfere with some of the, you know, very optimistic projections that you make in your report?
1: Yeah. So, listen, I think that some of the disastrous development in geopolitics, mm. South China Seas, uh, you know, has is there. It has received much less attention in the last two years because of other tensions and trade wars and other uh, security concerns. But South China Seas is, is there. Korea... So some of these geopolitical tensions and if they are taken to the next level would uh, <laughs> interfere with our projections, to use your right. words, in right. and, 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 and pretty dramatic ways. That would be disastrous. Um, but, but I think in the long term, you know, it's pretty clear, you know, Asia will grow. Uh, the centrality of Asia uh, is going to grow uh, and it comes from ongoing technology revolution. It comes from growing uh, populations, consumption, demand, and so forth. Mm. Oliver,
0: I know there are many more positions that McKinsey will be taking in the weeks and months ahead. You've got a whole spate of reports, which I guess you're looking to release uh, in the in the coming months. Um, we look
1: forward to that and hope we can come back and talk to you further. Really appreciate this, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Steve. Good talking to you. Thank you, Oliver.
0: That was the voice of Oliver Toneby, Asia-Pacific chairman of global consulting firm McKinsey & Company. While Oliver's stance on Asia is largely bullish, our conversation did reveal areas where failure to remain vigilant could derail projections of steady growth. So it is in this week's Asia Insider Minute that we consider the pros and cons of Asia's meteoric rise. The region is as complex as it is dynamic, and while Western influence in terms of trade, expertise, and investment has played an important role, the pivot has taken place. Oliver cites his organization's recent report by noting that within the decade, Asia will account for more than 50% of global consumption. Japan, South Korea, China, and India lead the pace of change, but developing markets from Indonesia to Vietnam and Myanmar are fast-rising stars in the constellation of Asian economies. My conversation with Oliver made me think of Julian Barnes' epic book, A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters. So much change has occurred in this part of the world in such a short period of time, it's hard to take it all in. Fifty years ago, the region was in turmoil. Maoist China was socially and economically gutted. Vietnam was in tatters from a decade of U.S. war and occupation. Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, and India were all living under varying forms of authoritarian leadership. And on the Korean Peninsula, a military standoff with major geopolitical ramifications. Fast forward to today, and commerce flourishes even in the most resolute communist countries. There's wide-scale peace and prosperity, job creation, and political stability. Education levels are rising everywhere, and more people live as members of the rising middle class than any time prior. Through the 80s and 90s, export-led growth fueled the region, gave a rise to new businesses, and established Asia as the world's manufacturing hub. The global financial crisis that sent the U.S. into a recession stung in Asia, but it also made markets more resilient. Asia-based corporations began to diversify, and intra-Asia trade got a boost. Today and throughout the remainder of this decade, Asia is experiencing a new surge, this time setting its sights on a commercial future of its own making. These changes are fueled by local investment, a swath of new startups, historically high levels of R&D, and brain power big enough to solve problems posed by population growth, urbanization, changing health patterns, and job demand. As trading partners, Western markets are still an essential piece of Asia's budding success. But decreased dependence means Asia's destiny is increasingly becoming a phenomena of its own design. While Oliver acknowledges that the story is not all rosy and that challenges posed by sustainability and climate change could negatively impact Asia in uncharted ways, the foundation, he says, is strong. How this new strength is perceived and accommodated by Western nations accustomed to being on top may prove the biggest question of all. These are the themes that keep us running, and here on Inside Asia, we have every hope and intention of feeding you, our listeners, the kind of quality insights you expect and deserve. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. There's more where this came from. We are 101 episodes in and counting, bringing to you in-depth conversations with some of the sharpest and most well-informed insiders throughout Asia. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit us at Inside Asia or go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or if you like, comment and rate the program on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, we thank Thank you for listening. And until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.